our uh, little brief study here on David. This is our last of the life of David in Psalms. And once again, if you remember correctly, about a month ago, when before we got into the whole thing with David and Bathsheba and all that other stuff, we said it'd be really nice if we could have just ended right then. And the sad part is we couldn't end right then. I like to say that uh, we can end here on a high note with David, and the truth of the matter is it's really a very dark time in David's life. If you have your hand in uh, second, excuse me, in Samuel 3, if you want to follow along here, you kind of can. I'm going to jump back into 2 Samuel here for a little bit. And if you haven't been with us, what we've been doing is going through David, who wrote uh, over 70 psalms. And what some of these psalms dealt with were certain situations that were going on in his life. So what we've done is we looked at the history books of like First and Second Samuel, seen what David was going through, but then when we go through psalms, we get a glimpse into his heart. Well, we ended with Second uh, Samuel third, excuse me, twelve, last week, and David with the affair with Bathsheba. And it was a very sad time, very dark time. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had Bathsheba's husband killed. David won a year in an unrepentant, unconfessed state. Nathan the prophet had to come set him straight. And from this point on, uh, David's ministry, David's home life, David's kingdom, really takes a pretty sour turn here. And it really shows the effect of what sin does. And it reminds me of that lesson we went through on Sundays a few weeks ago of where sin, it, it's just not worth it. <laughs> it's just not worth it. And you see what happens here. Well, what happens now with David's life is, if you want to follow on, you can. In 2 Samuel 13, we're introduced to this guy by the name of Absalom. Absalom is one of David's sons. And Absalom had a sister, a full sister, by the name of Tamar. And Tamar was obviously a very beautiful girl. And uh, Tamar had a half-brother by the name of Amon that liked her. And long story short, Amon ended up raping Tamar. David is in a very weak position, and David really doesn't do anything about it. And how many times have we heard that story? I've had how many parents have ever come up to me and said, I would really love to talk to my kids about fill in the blank. But I did that when I was their age, so how could I say anything? Well, you see here with David, by not doing anything, it just gets worse and worse. So what happens is, a couple years pass, Absalom doesn't forget that Ammon raped Tamar, so Absalom has Ammon killed. And then what happens now is Absalom has to run and flee. And he goes and hides for a couple years. Well, then there's this big thing here in uh, 2 Samuel 14 of bring Absalom back. So Absalom comes back. David forgives his son for killing his other son. But yet there's still all these unresolved issues. Well, now in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom starts to take over the kingdom. See, the Bible says Absalom was a very good-looking guy. And he must have had some head of hair on him. And I'm not making a joke about that, but if you read 2 Samuel 15, he had some head of hair on him. And he was very charismatic. He was very likable. He was a good politician. And what Absalom does in 2 Samuel 15 is he starts planting these little seeds. He starts planting these little seeds into the kingdom of, well, you know, this is what I would do if I was in charge. And how many times have we heard people do that? Just, that, well, that's what I would do. You know, I'm not saying anything bad about him, but if I was in charge, this, this is how I would do it. And what happens here is you seem to have David, and I don't want to add too much to Scripture, it almost seems like David is going into this almost darkest depression of just life falling apart. You know, he had one of his infant sons died, another one of his sons were killed, his other son killed him, this, this sin was made public. It was, it's a pretty tough time for David. Well, Absalom starts doing this, and he starts planting these seeds, and next thing you know, Absalom has full rebellion and he takes over the kingdom. And David, in 2 Samuel 15, has to flee Jerusalem. 
Because his son, let's just put all this together, his son, who killed his other son, who raped his half-sister, then came back, and David never did anything about it. It's just soap opera after soap opera here. And if you saw a movie like this, you would say, come on. But this is what happened. And so now Absalom takes over the kingdom, and David has to flee. So put yourself now in David's mindset. You are a, you know, you're a man getting up there in years a little bit. You're supposed to be enjoying your kingdom. You have two sons that have died here recently. You had another son that raped his half-sister, your daughter. You had the other son that killed the other son, and now he took the kingdom from you. And you have to flee your kingdom because of all this. And this is the mindset that David's in when he writes Psalm chapter 3. So now back in Psalm 3, what do we have? A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now it's only eight little verses, and there's really only four main points. Each two verses is a point. Verse 1, it says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are those who rise up against me. Many are those who say of me, there's no help for him in God. Selah. Now remember Selah, in our present day language we would say, think about it. Really what it means, stop, meditate, pause. So David is saying here, Everybody's against me. And they are. I mean, there's rebellion going on in his kingdom. Many trouble him. Many rise up against him. And basically, it looks like God's hand is not on him. Now, come on, haven't we ever been in that position? The world's against me. Everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. No one understands me. I'm out here all by myself on an island. I tell you this right now. Satan loves to get you to the point of thinking that no one understands, no one cares, you're not wanted, you're not the... He loves to get you in that point. And you know who Satan loves to use to get you in that point? The people that you're sitting with right now. Because this is what it comes down to. I have been hurt more by the body of Christ than I ever have by the world. Because I expect the world to hurt me. But I don't expect the body of Christ to hurt me. And the flip side of that is, I've caused more harm to the body of Christ than I ever have to the world. Because the world, I'll always be loving. I, you know, love of Jesus, but to the body of Christ, the flesh gets riled up, things get angry, things get said. And so what you see here is we've all been hurt. And the truth of the matter is, you've been hurt and you've hurt people. I've hurt people and I've been hurt. That's what happens. And this is where David's at right now. Everybody's against him. Everybody's troubling him. There's nothing going on. What's he supposed to do? His own son is, is committing rebellion against him after the whole murder thing and all that other stuff. And so that's why in verse 2, at the end of it, it says, Selah, stop, meditate, chew on this. Now the problem is a lot of us stop at verse 2 in life. And we have the woe is me moment. We have pity parties. Man, I had two pity parties this week. And none of you came. Because I had them. And I had this pity party and it's the woe is me. No one cares, no one understands. No one understands with all the weights on my shoulder, all this type of stuff. And the problem was I stopped at verse 2. And I never went on. And this is what happens to a lot of us, is we stop at verse 2 and we allow emotion to make our decisions and we allow emotion to control us. I am bothered at this. I am frustrated at that. I am angry at this. I am hurt by this. And we allow emotion to get the best of us. Now, if you stop at verse 2, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to be miserable. You're absolutely going to be miserable. So what does he do in verse 3? But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice. He heard me from his holy hill, Selah. Now he says, stop and think about that. I was in a pit. I was in a horrible pit. But yet God is the shield, the glory, the strength that gets me through it. 
the beautiful part about this. It's focus. See, I can tell when somebody calls me or in my own personal life when I let emotion make the best of it. And I know for me, when I get emotional, there's one side of me that's like, just James, settle down. It's not worth it. I'll say the same thing if someone calls. It's like, hey, take a break here. Settle down. Let's think about this. Let's not make any snap decisions. Don't make a decision in the flesh. Pray. You know, that's what we do. And see, David is setting the example here. I'm going back to the Lord and thinking about him. Because when you keep your eyes on the Savior, the situation doesn't get to you. But if you've got your eyes on the situation, boy, you're in deep trouble. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 14. And I know all of you probably know this verse. You know where I'm going. But you know what? It, it's important to do this one. Go to Matthew 14. This is probably one of the most taught-over points in all the Bible. Matthew 14. Remember this. If you focus on the situation and not the Savior, you're going to be depressed. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to be let down. You have to focus on the Savior. You are going to be hurt. You are going to be offended. You are going to be bothered. We all are. You're going to do it, and you're also going to receive it. Matthew 14, verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Be of good cheer, it is I. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you in the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But look at verse 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. You know, how many times have we heard this? When Peter sank, why did he sink? He sank because he got his eyes off Christ. See, this is what happens. In your life, you will sink if you get your eyes off Christ. I mean, marriages sink if their eyes aren't on Christ. Relationships sink if their eyes aren't on Christ. Relation, I mean, just things go downhill if your eyes aren't on Christ. When your eyes are on the Savior, you walk on the water through the storm because Christ gets you through it. But as soon as you take your eyes off the Savior, and what do you do in verse 30? The wind is boisterous. Fear gets the best of you. And you start to sink. That's what happens. And as you start to sink, at least Peter says, Lord, save me. And look at verse 31. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and called him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I love the fact that Christ immediately saves Peter. Immediately. Because in my flesh, I don't want to immediately save people sometimes. I have comments like, you know what? They need to learn a lesson. This is good for them. Let them sit there for a while and feel that way. Let them go through that. They've, they've sowed this. Let them reap what they sow. But yet, when I'm the one sinking in the water, I want the immediate hand of Jesus to pull me up. But when it's somebody else sinking, sometimes I think they need to get wet a little bit. Lord, let the water get up to your ears. See, and I'm so thankful that Jesus immediately stretches out his hand, catches him, and gets him. See, David could have stopped at verse 2 and had a woe-is-me moment. My world is falling apart. Everything's falling apart. Instead, he got his eyes on the Lord. He got his focus back where it's supposed to be. And because he got that, he realized God is his shield, his strength, his power, his might. God got him through it. One of the things we do with the boys is if they're doing something wrong, one of the things we'll say is, obviously, look at us. And so what they'll do is they'll lift their head to look at us, but they won't make eye contact with us. So what do you do as a parent? You take your hand and you put your hand on their head, under their chin. And you say, look at me. 
and you literally lift their head up and they look at you. Now, I don't know the context in Psalm 3 when David says, the Lord is, lifts my head. That may be a very loving lifting of the head, you know, where the child is asleep on your arm. It may also be a loving father that says, David, look at me. <laughs> get your head up here. Look at me. Because David could have easily let the situation get the best of him, but he didn't because he realized the Lord is his strength and his shield and God heard him. Just look at this. Jump back to Psalm 3 now. Two words in, in verse 4. Cried and heard. How many times have you cried out to the Lord and thought he's never heard you? He hears you. He does. Now, he may not answer as quick as what you want or as soon or the way you want, but when you cry out to the Lord, he hears you. And what is the result of it? Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, how in the world could David sleep? He's got murder. He's got rape, rebellion, and he slept. How? For the Lord sustained me. See, God gets you through it. And isn't nighttime the worst? Oh, that's the worst. You lay there and everything is quiet and your mind just can't shut down. You're thinking about this. You're thinking about that. You're analyzing. I, I have a tendency to rehash situations. If I should have said this, I should have said that. And, and you look here in David and it's like, you know what, Lord, I'm going to lay down and sleep and give it over to you. Because in Isaiah, the Bible says that the God of Israel does not sleep nor slumber. So, Lord, while I'm sleeping, Lord, you work on this situation. You work on that person's heart. So when I wake up tomorrow, I'm refreshed, I'm ready. Why? Because I'm sustained by the Lord. And I'm telling you right now, if somebody wants to sit here and say, I, you can't, it's not that easy, it, it is difficult. Because what you have to do in verses 5 through 6 is let go of all that worry, fear, anxiety, and you have to give it over to the Lord and let him deal with it or frustration, anger, bitterness, whatever it is. You've got to give it over to the Lord and let him deal with it. And then you sleep, because God takes care of it. He's the one that does it. Jump, if you will, to uh, Philippians real quick. Another very famous verse here, but it's important to go to at this time. Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Where does this peace come from in the middle of a storm? It comes from the Lord and it comes from prayer. Philippians 4, verse 6. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let's stop and look at this verse. Be anxious for what? Nothing. So what are you allowed to be anxious about? Nothing. See, isn't it amazing as Christians, we're like, okay, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to be anxious for anything, but this one's big. I'm allowed to be worried about this one. No, be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer. I don't care how little that worry is or concern or how little that little bit of frustration is. You have to give it over to the Lord in prayer. Because I've seen people say, oh, it's not that big a deal. I'm okay with it. And it's like, no, you're not okay with that. That is just a horrible disease that will fester and the Satan will use that. We have to give it over to the Lord in prayer. And how do you give it over to the Lord in prayer? With thanksgiving. Now, you know how hard it is to give things over to the Lord in prayer and thanksgiving? I got this devotional I read a lot, and, and he's had two points recently that's really been hard for me to swallow. One of them was that you need to pray for those people that are bothering you. And not like pray fire down from heaven type thing, but pray for them. And one of the things you're supposed to pray is, Lord, thank you for them. Wow. Wow. 
That is really hard to do. You know, Lord, thank you for them. I don't know what to thank them for. You know, it's one of those things. It is difficult to do. But I've noticed, and this is the point of it, is that when you start praying for those people or those situations that are really bringing you down, it's amazing how your heart starts to change a little bit. It really does. And in this book I'm reading, the guy says, when you pray for those people that hurt you or wrong you, what happens is you start seeing them through the eyes of God. And it's really hard to hate somebody when you pray for them. And I know people sometimes have come to me for counseling or situations and they vent, they get it off their chest, and they, and they explain to me how big of a jerk this person is. And they expect me to agree with them. And what I usually say is, you know what, you're right. It sounds like this person has done some horrible things. We really need to pray for them. Pray for them? Yeah, we need to pray for them. Well, yeah, I'm going to pray for them. No, pray that their attitude be changed. Pray for those things that bother you. We need to pray for them. Lord, mold and shape that person in the image of Christ. But yet we, we don't do those things because we just are so angry and upset. And God says, let's pray for him. Let your request be made known to God. What's the result of this? Verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. See, when you give it over to the Lord in prayer, he replaces your worry, fear, and anxiety with peace. I know this is Christianity 101, but don't we forget this? Lord, I'm really worked up about this. Well, pray about it. Well, what good is that going to do? When you pray... With thanksgiving, give it over to the Lord. God says, I'll trade you. Worry for peace. What a deal. What a great deal. But you know what happens in my mind? My mind wants to wander back to that situation. That's why we have verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good rapport, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. See, I know some people that just constantly focus on what's wrong instead of what's right. If you constantly focus on what's wrong instead of what's right, where do you, where do you really think your heart's going to go? It's, it's going to go down that path of discouragement and depression and anger and frustration, and you're just going to get all worked up. You're going to be laying there in bed at night, going over everything, and I can't believe they did this, I can't believe they did that. Because why? The mind starts to wander to where it shouldn't go. That's why it also says in Corinthians to take every thought captive. So you take a captive, you give it over to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I'm not even going to focus on this anymore. I'm not even going to focus on it. And let's get to our last point here in Psalm 3. Because here's the point. There's still wrong things happening. Absalom is wrong. He killed a guy. He's rebelling. This is wrong. See, we don't stop at the end of verse 6 either and say, oh, this is just great hunky-dory. My world's falling apart and I'm just going to sleep. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings upon your people. See, though. Think about it. See, now this is one of those verses where you say, yeah. Now I'm liking this. That wrongs will be punished. I like that. And see, and God is a God of justice and truth. So therefore, wrongs will be punished. I tell people all the time, the truth will come out. It will. But here's the thing is, if you're constantly the person that wants judgment, just be careful. Because one of these days, you're going to be the person that's wrong. And so when you're praying in verse 7 for the teeth of your enemy to be knocked out, there may be somebody down the road praying for your teeth to be knocked out. Because you may be wrong. So we have to be careful of verses 7 and 8. But what the thing that comes out of verse 7 and 8 is this. Lord, this person is wrong. This person has wronged me. Lord, this situation is not fair. Lord, I ask you to take care of it. Note, David's not asking for permission to take care of it. He's saying, Lord, I want you to take care of it. And this is what I want to finish with. Turn, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 
This is probably the hardest point of the lesson. It's stepping back and allowing the Lord to right the wrongs. Allowing the Lord to step in and work on that person's heart. I remember one time talking to a gal. Boy, she was going through a tough time. Boy, she, I mean, it was a real tough time. And, I, and the subject came up again. I said, boy, you know, you need to pray about that. We need to pray for this person. And she goes, I'm tired of praying for that person. I'm tired of praying for the situation to be worked out. I'm tired of it. And don't you get that way? Lord, I'm sick and tired of the situation happening again and again and again. And, and we want to step in and take care of it. As we're in 1 Peter 3 here, if you're taking notes, just write down this verse real quick. Hebrews 10.30. Hebrews 10.30. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Now, who gets to repay? God. Vengeance is mine. And, I, and I, I'm going to tell you this right now, and some of you may disagree with me, and I'll talk to you about it one-on-one -on -one afterwards if you want. That person that you hate and can't stand, you, you really don't want that person to have the vengeance of the Lord. You really don't want them to go to hell forever. You don't. Now, you may sit here and you may say, oh, yes, I do, or you know what, I can't. You really don't. I don't think any born-again believer would really want to see somebody spend eternity in, in the fires of hell. So when we say vengeance is mine, say of the Lord, we've got to be careful with that because, yeah, Lord, you go make that thing right. Sometimes I see these stories on the news and it's like, oh, Lord, can't wait till that guy stands before the great white throne. It's like, do I really believe that? Lord, I want that guy to be saved and born again in Jesus Christ. I want the wrongs to be made right, but I want him to be made right by the blood of Jesus. So we've got to be careful. So what happens? Let's just be honest. What happens when we go through this whole thing of, okay, Lord, I'm surrounded by trouble. Okay, Lord, I focus on you. Okay, I trust your peace. But for crying out loud, I'm still angry. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Now, isn't that not a kindergarten verse? Just be nice to each other. I mean, seriously, that's what God has said. Just be nice to each other. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. How many times have we heard, well, he did this, she said that. That doesn't give us a green light to respond. And, and I'm reading a great book right now, and I think I told you about it a couple Sundays ago, about, about offenses and being offended. Boy, it's eye-opening, and it's really convicting. And one of the things that I was reading about is, when we are wronged, and we are wronged rightfully, meaning that I have a righteous anger to be upset about this. This situation is wrong. And one of the points that come out in this book is, just because you were wronged for no reason doesn't give you the right to then carry this grudge around. Because you see this a lot as Christians. I was wronged by my fill-in-the-blank. My ex, my family, my friends, my coworkers, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, my mom, my dad, my wife, fill-in-the-blank. It doesn't give you the right, though, to be angry in the sense of letting that anger control you because we're all going to get upset, but we can't let it control you. Verse 9, not returning evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, you may inherit a blessing. Now, how are we supposed to do that? Aren't you glad that when God gives us a really tough task, he also gives us an example to follow? Jump back to 1 Peter 2. <coughs> 1 Peter 2, verse 19. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. God says, if you're wronged and you're suffering wrongfully, 
You're actually going to get blessed by that. Verse 20. For what credit is in you when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. God says maturity is allowing that wrong to be let go of. Verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should fall in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. See, Jesus set the example for us to say, you know what, I was wronged. But I still went through it because that's what God's will was for the situation. And some of you, you've been wronged. But you can't let that wrong control you. Some of you are surrounded by trials and tribulations, just like verses 1 and 2. What are you going to do? Are you going to cry out to the Lord and say, God, get me through this, or are you going to allow the situation to control you? Remember, you either keep your eyes on the situation or you keep your eyes on the Savior. If you keep your eyes on the situation, you're going to sink. If you get your eyes on the Savior, you can walk through the storm on the water. God gets you through it. David got through this very difficult time to the point of restful sleep because he gave it over to the Lord and said, I'm trading my anxieties for peace. And that's what it comes down to. And what a beautiful psalm this is. And, it's, and like I said, it's a great psalm to end on. It really is. It's just a really sad story to end on because of what happens there with Absalom and David and the kingdom. All because of sin. It's amazing what sin does. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here? Yeah, Rose. Uh, the way my Bible study these things, uh, going through Esther, mm-hmm. and one of the comments that Beth Moore made unforgiveness or holding something against someone, that whatever you hold against someone holds you to <coughs> As long as you don't forgive, you're held to that person. And if you want to be free from all that that's going on and that you're going through, you have to forgive, and then you're free from that person. Yeah. But as long as you don't forgive, you're tied to that person. Like you said, you go back to it again yeah. and again. And, you know, of course, you're talking about Haman and Mordecai. But, you know, that applies to all of us, that we're not going to be free until we forgive. And that's an absolute point. We're not going to be free until we forgive. There is such a beautiful freedom in saying, I forgive you. Amen. Yeah. And not, you wronged me. Yeah, I forgive you. You know, I, I share this real quick, and I know we're getting late here. I had a guy call me one time, and in, he went through this whole story. Long story short, he went up to his wife and he said, you know what, you've been really difficult, you've really been a problem, and you really have caused a lot of problems. I just want to let you know I forgive you. And it, feels good, and it feels good to be the mature one in this relationship. And I told him, man, that's like the worst thing you could say. He goes, but you told me I need to forgive her. I said, yeah, you need to forgive her, but you don't make the speech out of it. So often, I do this. I forgive you for doing this, 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 and this. Rather than just saying, I forgive you. Boy, that's hard to do. That is really, really hard to do. Anybody else have anything here? Yeah, Megan. Well, you got to remember. Right. Thanks for taking us off on a uh, quite the <laughs> question here, but. Um, you got to remember, the purpose of prayer is not filling God in. The purpose of prayer is talking to him, opening your heart, and allowing him to open your heart. Um, I, my boys have told me they love me I don't know how many times in my life, and I'll, I'd like to hear it a thousand more times each day. God already knows what's going on, yeah, but by you opening your heart up to him, you're not filling him in on the details. You're allowing your heart to be molded now by the potter. 
Because you're just a piece of clay. And when you go to the prayer, you're saying, Lord, this situation bothers me. This situation annoys me. This situation frustrates me. Or, Lord, I'm troubled by this. God says, let, let me mold you now. Let, let me make you a better person. Let me make you a better believer. Prayer opens the door for God to work in your life. So remember, you're not filling him in on the details. He already knows. You're opening the door to say, Lord, please work on my heart with this. Anybody else got anything I want to say before we close up? Real quick, somebody sent me a quote, and if you gave me this quote, number one, I'm going to screw it up. Number two, I apologize, I can't give you credit for it. But it's sitting on my desk, and it was something to the fact of, I think unforgiveness is like you taking poison and hoping the other person dies. I don't know who gave that to me, but if you gave that to me, it's a good, good quote. But I think it was something to the fact of like unforgiveness is you taking poison and hoping the other person dies. And isn't that the truth of it? You, you harbor unforgiveness, and who's the one that gets hurt? You do. The mature thing is to forgive, forget, let it go. Boy, it's hard. Hard thing to do. Anybody else have any final things? Yeah. It's impossible without the Lord. Amen. It is impossible. It is. It is. That is a good way to put it. It is humanly impossible to sometimes forgive, forget, and move on. It is. And that's where the Holy Spirit steps in to do it. Yeah, Renee. What's that? Sorry. I don't even know half the stuff I say. I'm like, that's a good quote. I'm waiting for you to finish it so I can write it down because I think I want to hear that. Maturity, what was it? Let's just fill in the blank. This is like Mad Libs. Maturity is allowing the wrong... Good thing we record the messages. I really don't know. Sorry. Yeah. Jump ahead to like minute 28. You don't have to listen to the rest of it because that was at the end. Anybody else got anything I want to say here before we close up? Hey, wonderful little study here with uh, David and the Psalms. Thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, a lot of neat background there. We're going to see where the Lord goes next week. It's always fun to pray and say, Lord, where do you want us to go? And I hope you can make it out for that. So without much further... Oh, I forgot to announce this. Um, I forget so many announcements. Saturday morning, uh, Ron Tiarina is putting up a building at his house, and he was wondering if there would be any able-bodied men to come over and help him, because he says he's not able-bodied meaning that he doesn't know what to do or how to do it. He's going to be out there helping and working, but uh, the needs ministry is going to try to go over there. So I think Russ may have chatted with some of you guys. If you're interested in helping out with that, Ron lives over in Holgate. Great guy there. Great way to help out. If you need directions or anything like that, see me, see Pastor Rich. Um, we'll get some information into your hand. I believe they're going to start that right away Saturday morning. So if you want to help out another brother with a project there, he was uh, looking for some help over there in the Holgate area. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We stop and say thank you. Um, Lord, help us not to let the situation control us, but to let the Savior control us. Lord, we love you. We stumble in this area. We fall in this area a lot. But Lord, you just keep lifting up our head, and we say thank you for that. Lord, we love you, and we want to serve you in all ways and all things. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so